Our first scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and that's found on page 181 in the New Testament of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. So this is Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, from the New Revised Standard Version. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
you, choir, and thank you, flautist, our own Sydney Dawkins, who is fresh from her tour of Scotland and has returned to be with us for the summer before she heads back to Monmouth. So thank you very much, Sydney, for joining the choir with your beautiful flute playing. Second scripture lesson this morning comes from the first chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, we're preparing in our reading sequences for next Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday. And what happened before Pentecost? Well, it was ascension. So it's the ascension of Christ into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Luke begins, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day that he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. As a gardener prepares the soil for seed, O Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Soften the hard places. Moisten the dry places. So that your word may take root in our hearts and we may live and do your will. To the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. I spent uh, just the last few days uh, of the middle of this past week with my son Calvin in Boston and his wife Meg and their little girl Louisa. And I, you know, when you're a parent and you see your kids become parents, you reflect on what a lousy job you did to prepare them. And you think about the time when they were the age of where your grandkids are now, good grief, I sound old. In any case, there was a period of time when he was about three, which is uh, Louise's ages now, where he would be frightened by thunderstorms. The terror lasted, fortunately, only for a few months. But it was deep, and it was earnest, and more importantly, it interrupted not only his sleep, but his parents' sleep. He made quite sure that his anxiety was loud enough that we would be awakened. And so there'd be a clap of thunder followed by, Dad! 
course, I wanted my son to grow up with a clear understanding of how the world worked around him. So into the middle of these night terrors, I would take them as teaching moments. I'd say, Calvin, don't be afraid. There's nothing to worry about. It's just lightning and it's just thunder. You see, as the warm air rises, it cools and condenses, forming small droplets of water. And when there's enough instability in the air, the updraft of the warm air is rapid and the water vapor quickly chills. And that's what forms your cumulus clouds. And the warm air continues to rise. The water droplets, when they condense, they get bigger and bigger and they begin to fall. And they first fall as hail. And as they are hail and going through the cloud, they pick up positive charged ions through the fix friction, not unlike when you rub a balloon against a wall and it sticks. And these smaller positively charged ice crystals then come down and when they melt, they turn into water. But all those ions contained in the cloud attracted to the Earth's surface, which is largely negatively charged. Um, when it becomes strong enough, the positive and negative ions discharge and balance the electron differential between the water droplets and the Earth itself or whatever is sticking up from it. Rapid expansion, heating air caused by the lightning produces the boom of the thunder. Okay? So it expands and it creates the boom. The fact that the lightning flash is ahead of the thunderclap is because light travels 186,000 miles per second. And sound only travels at about 1,125 miles per hour. And so the light arrives much faster, and then he'd go, Mom! <laughs> I was promptly sent back to bed. Mission accomplished. <laughs> his eyes brimming with tears, his mom would come in and talk him about angels bowling and taking pictures of each other filling his head with nonsense. But on the other hand, he did go back to sleep. <laughs> so you can't argue with success. Once again, once again, this past week, our otherwise sleepy Tuesday was interrupted with flash and thunder of yet another heavily armed young man murdering teachers and almost all of a fourth grade class in Uvalde, Texas. Now in our terror there are plenty of explainers rushing to attend to our interrupted slumber. There are those who suggest that we harden the schools, make them safe fortresses with only one entrance or exit, and that we add to the training of our student teachers sniper practice. Others suggest we methodically vacuum all high-power, easy-trigger, large-caliber assault weapons from the hands of citizenry. And opportunistically, the politicians on every side explain why it is that we need to give them more money for their campaigns to counterbalance the flood of cash on the other side. Please know that today I am not going to use the pulpit as a platform to spew my political opinion. I have one, but I will gladly share that with you when I am dressed as a civilian. And when we can actually have a conversation and you're not forced to sit quietly while I give you my thoughts on the Second Amendment. 
regardless of where you stand on the policy, I am to stand up here called and employed to be your pastor. So pastoring I intend to do. Pastorally, let us all confess something. We've been down this road too many times before. And while the nations rage and tumult resounds, it seems no one is really doing much of anything to address the gnawing terror in our guts and the overwhelming sorrow in our hearts. What we want is a time machine to magically go back, undo a sequence of events of the omnipotent ability to make certain things just not happen. Maybe in the first place. Definitely never again. And while collectively we might be able to shift the trajectory of the future, we remain completely powerless as the echo of the storms rings in our ears. I offer some thanks this morning to an email from Doug Kogan who sent a word to me late last night. The Japanese have a word for it. The word is kubaiko. Kuibaiko. Kuibaiko. It's defined as that helpless feeling by knowing too much and being powerless. Kuibaiko. Most recently, Kuibaiko is used to describe the fatigue created when we see too much senseless violence. We're exhausted. We're powerless. The Japanese have a word for it. Kuibaiko. Now, I'd like to say that I called up the same Calvin who I used to comfort with my science class in the middle of the night to find out the meaning and the history of the word Kuibaiko because he is, among other things, fluent in Japanese. Just a little proud dad moment. Um, but it was really early this morning when I read the email, and so I didn't bother waking him up for fear that I'd wake up the three-year-old. So uh, I'll thank Google. Kuibaiko is a character in Shinto mythology, most frequently depicted by his avatar, which is a scarecrow. The scarecrow views all, sees all, but has no legs, and so is powerless to act. Once the birds realize that the scarecrow has no power, all the scarecrow can do is watch the field become decimated while he remains stationary. He knows the destruction is occurring, and there's nothing Kulibaiko can do about it. I fear that we have become scarecrows. Kulibaiko. We know way too much, and with all that knowledge, we are painfully aware of how little we can do. It's a feeling a lot of us had during the pandemic. It happens during school shootings. It happens when Russia invades Ukraine. Pick a newspaper page. Wave after wave of thunderous, tragic wave, things happen over which we have no control and we feel helpless. I'd suggest in a much more pedestrian sort of way the feeling of Kuibaiko is what Cubs fans experience each and every year. It's a feeling that the disciples had as they were watching Jesus' feet disappear up into a cloud there in Jerusalem. Kuibaiko, we see what's going on. Now what? Now what? 
Of course, as we read, there were two men in white that tell them to move on. Jesus will return, stay in Jerusalem. But there's a whole bunch of thunder and lightning and tragedy and shootings and wars and pandemics before that self-same Christ will return. And there is the promise of wisdom and power coming with the Holy Spirit when we celebrate next week's Pentecost. A spirit that enlivens the body of Christ and the church towards collective and hopefully more effective action, reform, reconciliation, and hope. But most of life, my friends, we suffer because we live in the meantime. The little Calvin needed, his mom understood better than did I. In those early morning hours when the storms interrupted his restful sleep, what he needed was love. Not explanation, but love. Good, humored, embracing nurture. Before the explanations, before the science lesson, before the action plan, he needed to be loved so that in that love he could rest. That, my friends, is deeper than politics. Those who do not know they are loved wither. And sometimes they decide if they won't be loved, they will be feared. And those who could have loved drop the ball. And so I know what Chris was doing. I saw that. I got it. And I heard what Dan was saying. How do we back up and love afresh? Any policy, any proposal, any rule, any law, any plan, any structure of public mental health services that don't have love? Imagine, if you will, a dear friend of yours who perhaps had visited this church not too long ago and spent a great deal of time, but they needed to move on. And you found out that that individual, after having been here, and they maybe preached a guest sermon or taught a Sunday school class, they'd gone to another city and found themselves to be arrested unjustly. There was no actual law that was broken. The police just decided that he should be incarcerated. And they toss him into prison. And think for a moment about the fact that the prison into which he has been tossed is known for, among other things, just unnecessarily torturing its inmates. You're a long way away. You have no legal recourse. All you know is, is that your dear friend is suffering. Imagine, if you will, they receive a letter. And you open that letter from your incarcerated friend. Maybe even smells of sweat, and there may even be a smudge of blood from the persecution that the friend is receiving. And imagine, if you will, that when you open that letter and you pull it out, anticipating to hear about the horrors of their unjust incarceration and their hope for release, instead you read these words. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you 
as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so as you come to know him, so that with eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And he's put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. From prison, unjustly accused, tortured, and he writes that to us. So the pastor in me says, before we talk about my opinions on the Second Amendment, before we protest, before we debate, before we have arguments about the exact caliber and pull pressure on triggers or schools or strategically positioned protectors, we need to start with this. We need to start with love. God's love because before it is a gun problem or a mental health problem or a training problem it's a love problem wherever we may go with our helplessness may it be said of us I've heard of your faith in Jesus and your love to all the saints for this reason, I do not hesitate to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Now, I hear you say, oh, great, what did the pastor preach about? He said, well, all we need is love. Isn't that useless? Isn't that naive? Isn't that cute? I went to church today, and I had a Coca-Cola commercial. Well, you're welcome to think that way if you like. But... Um, there's legislation and there are institutions and there are systems that all need our attention. But before we get around to it, let me wander to something else that that same imprisoned apostle Paul wrote even later in his life after he had been beaten up a few times by authorities. He still was able to say this, if I speak with the tongues of men or angels and I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith to move mountains, to write better legislation, to transform the educational system, to rebuild society, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have to the poor and my body to be burned, and I don't have love, I gain nothing. The chant in the streets, my friends, is no justice, no peace. I've marched and said that. But you know what? No love, no justice. 
no peace. We'll love our focus. We'd stop feeling so damned helpless. Amen. Please stand and speak with me the words of our ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty.